This is Africa Digest. It's 1700 hours Central African time. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We're coming to you from Johannesburg in South Africa and on frequency 9625 kilohertz in the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. We are also on Channel 902 on the DSTV audio bouquet. My name is Spumelele Zondi and I'm with Asanda Mataunya, Newisane Matebula and Musibudi Makura. Your top stories. Authorities in South Sudan confirmed that 400 Sudanese citizens have escaped from NIA rebels. UN experts say the country has a long way to go to achieve peace. In economics, Zimbabwe Finance Minister vows the country will sharply reduce its public sector wage bill and improve fiscal discipline. And in sports, South Africa's women's cricket team clinched a series win against West Indies. Here's Asanda Matonian. Thanks, Pumelele. Good afternoon. Tunisian troops have killed seven more Islamist militants during raids in Ben Gwedan, the town on the Libyan border, where at least 55 people died during an attack on Monday by Islamic State fighters. Witnesses and security sources say clashes are continuing between the armed forces and militants just outside Ben Gwedan in another operation to clear the area of fighters who appear to be seeking a territorial foothold inside Tunisia. Military raids late on Tuesday and into Wednesday morning in Ben Gwedan also recovered weapons and at least 10 other people have been arrested. Morocco's government has accused UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon of no longer being neutral in the Western Sahara conflict, saying he used the word occupation to describe Morocco's presence in the region. The long-running dispute over the desert region has festered since Morocco took control over most of it in 1975 following the withdrawal of former colonial power Spain. The Polisario Front waged a guerrilla war until a UN-brokered ceasefire in 1991, but the two sides have been deadlocked since. Ban said last week he would restart UN efforts to reach a solution. The South African Human Rights Commission will be holding a racism conference following a storm of racist comments over social media this year. The Commission says they received 160 complaints with regards to racism. 98 of them were related to Penny Sparrow, an estate agent who referred to black beachgoers as monkeys. CEO of the Commission, Lindiwe Kumalu. Measured over a period of three financial years, our racism complaints or equality complaints tend to range from 10 to 13 percent of our total complaints. In the month of uh, January, we experienced a spike Um, arising from complaints relating to utterances by Penny Sparrow on social media and other related complaints uh, in response to Penny Sparrow's uh, utterances. Meanwhile, the country's Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa says government is planning to hold a summit on social cohesion in 2018 to promote nation-building and tackle racism. The Deputy President was, was responding to questions from MPs at the National Council of Provinces. The National Summit on Social Cohesion 
that is being planned for 2018 will take stock of the progress that we will have made in promoting social cohesion, ridding our country of racism, sexism, xenophobia, and intolerance. Social cohesion is a national effort which will require that we must all take collective action and also take personal responsibility as citizens of this great nation. Authorities have searched the offices of France's Soccer Federation and seized documents to help a Swiss investigation into former FIFA president Sepp Blatter. The operation is linked to a 2 million US dollar payment to France's Michel Platini, according to Switzerland's Office of the Attorney General. Swiss prosecutors said in September they had opened a criminal investigation into Blatter on suspicion of criminal mismanagement and misappropriation of funds. Blatter and UEFA President Michel Platini are both banned from soccer for six years. Both have denied any wrongdoing and have made no immediate public statements on the search. For Channel Africa News, I'm Asanda Mazzaunyani. It's 17.05 Central African time. Thank you very much, Asanda, for that news update. Now, authorities in South Sudan, as well as religious leaders, have confirmed that 400 Sudanese citizens have escaped from Lord's Resistance Army LRA captivity. Details of their escape remain sketchy, but this development comes at a time when the hunt for LRA leader Joseph Kony enters the 30th year. James Shimanyula reports. As the hunt to capture Ugandan fugitive leader Joseph Kony continues, he has reportedly been eluding capture and in his hurried retreat to new hideouts, 400 captives have escaped. The captives have just arrived in Yambio town in South Sudan's western Equatorial region. Yambio is located on the borders separating South Sudan with the Central African Republic and the Democratic Republic of Congo. The 400 captives, the majority of them men, were welcomed to Yambio town by James Baje, Speaker of Western Equatorial Regional Assembly. We are happy to welcome back. We really want to thank you very much for bringing them back alive. I want to thank the government of Congo. I want to thank the UN and all the NGOs that are here for accompanying these innocent children. You are welcome with the children. We will take care of you and give you back to your family. Also welcoming the captives was Michael Kisiro, a priest at the Ambio Catholic Church. We are delighted that we are receiving Sudanese citizens here. And we are grateful that you found these people, you took care of them, you protected them, and you are handing them over to our hands. They are former LRA abductees who come out in Congo. The issue of LRA is not planned for, and nobody wants this to happen. If you know of former LRA abductees from South Sudan who are integrated in some of these foster care families, and they are being used as domestic workers, please trace them, bring them back to us. We need them. The hunt for LRA rebel leader Joseph Kony has been underway since 1986 when he withdrew from Uganda and occupied new hideout places in the CAR and the Democratic Republic of Congo. 
Abu Musa, United Nations representative in the Central African Republic, asserts that the hunt for Kony is gaining momentum. There are actions that are taking place in the field, so that is keeping the LRA and their people very uneasy. The mandate given to my office is to coordinate the input of the United Nations as a whole. We have been working collaborating with the African Union to drum up support politically for this initiative, which means we had to visit the various countries to obtain their commitment through sister agencies and NGOs. We do provide services to defectors and they become normal citizens. We have programs for the people where the defectors are returning to because they don't want to accept them. They see them as LR even though they were captured and made to work by force. So you need to address that aspect. As the hunt for Joseph Kony enters the 30th year, the following points must be borne in mind. Details of how the 400 Sudanese were released from captivity remain sketchy. However, South Sudan intelligence military officials say bands of LRA rebels have been active in the CAR, the Central African Republic, Democratic Republic of Congo, and South Sudan. Since 2006, soldiers from the three countries have been hunting for Kony, and whenever he gets wind of the hunters getting closer to him, Kony retreats to a new area. Such retreats, intelligence sources say, have paved the way for some of Kony's captives to escape. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. The United Nations Independent Experts appointed to investigate violations of human rights committed during the 10-month crisis in Burundi say the country still has a long way to go in terms of human rights violations. In their press briefing they had in the capital, Bujumbura, at the end of their mission, the three experts recognized that Burundi recorded severe human rights violations which need to be decided on. Bernard Bankokira reports from Bujumbura. The three experts were mandated to investigate violations and abuses of human rights in order to prevent deterioration of the situation in Burundi in crisis since April last year. Speaking to journalists in the capital Bujumbura at their eight-day fact-finding mission in the troubled Central African nation, the experts acknowledged to be satisfied by the openness and engagement of the country's leaders and members of the civil society during their mission. They recommend to address the issue of impunity and human rights violations that are rooted from the country's long history. Pablo de Grief, Special UN Rapporteur on the Promotion of Truth, Justice, Repression and Guarantees of Non-Recurrence, is among the experts. He warns of a danger if human rights violations are not addressed. I would like to emphasize that it is very important for the country to gain clarity about the human rights violations that have taken place since the crisis started. Uncertainty about them makes it possible for the issue to become the subject of partisan politics. So in addition to the fact that the victims have a right to truth, justice, reparation, and guarantees of non-recurrence, there is some danger involved in letting the issue of human rights undecided. The second general point that we would like to make is that it is very important for the country not just to gain some understanding of the recent violations, 
but to address problems of impunity also concerning violations that are significantly older that took place in the past because the country has a long history of cycles of violence that can only be interrupted by addressing the situation of impunity. Though they cannot provide any figures on violation cases, the experts say to have received testimonies of arbitrary executions that have occurred since the breakout of the crisis. Christoph Enns, the UN Special Rapporteur on Extrajudicial Executions, estimates it's crucial to address the situation to avoid future violations. He appreciates that the government has welcomed the deployment of further monitors to the country who would monitor the situation on the ground. We have received the reports um, from the outside, of course, and the figures, I think, are all uh, known to us. That During the last year, the allegation is that there were more than 400 such executions. We're not in a position to verify those numbers, but from the discussions uh, that we've had uh, with people who are eyewitnesses and people who are in other ways involved, um, it seems clear that such executions have taken place, um, and it also seems clear that on the different sides there has been the use of force uh, outside of, of the law and use of lethal force as well. There are strong allegations of torture that takes place, of disappearances as well, and uh, I think it will be crucial to address the situation and in a way to prevent future uh, violations as well, to have ways of verifying uh, the truth on the ground, to have monitors on the ground, increased uh, a number of monitors. And this was welcomed by government as well, the people we spoke to, uh, that the African Union is increasing its number of monitors from 32 to 100. Also, um, the human rights observers that we plan to place here has been welcomed. And I think that is absolutely crucial uh, if one wants to break the cycles of violence, that there is a system of verifying facts in order to ensure uh, that there is no impunity. The three experts comprised of the South African Christoph Ains, the UN Special Rapporteur on Extrajudicial Summary or Arbitrary Executions, the Algerian Maya Sahli Fadel, the AU Special Rapporteur on Refugees, Asylum Seekers, Migrants and Internally Displaced Persons, and the Colombian Pablo de Graef, the UN Special Rapporteur on the Promotion of Truth, Justice, Reparation and Guarantees of Non-Recurrence. They are all members of the United Nations Independent Investigation Commission on Burundi, established by the Human Rights Council on 17 December 2015 to undertake an investigation into violations and abuses of human rights with a view to preventing further deterioration of the human rights situation in the country. During their mission to Burundi, they met with the country's leaders, the Human Rights National Commission, as well as other stakeholders, including the United Nations country team and NGOs. One of them is expected to update the Human Rights Council on March 21st this year on their initial findings and conclusions, as a final report is due in September 2016. For Channel Africa, this is Bernard Bankukira, reporting from Bujumbura. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Culture and Joy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. 
Channel Africa Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Your time is 1716 right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Spomele Lezondi with you until 1800 hours. On Twitter, find us on Channel Africa 1. Ratings agency Moody's has placed South Africa's rating of about 2 on review for downgrade just hours before Finance Minister Gordon, Pravin Gordon rather, landed in the United States on the second leg of his investor roadshow. Moody's says the decision was prompted by the continuing rise in risks to South Africa's medium-term economic prospects and its fiscal strength. More from Thea Ferry, economist at IHS in Pretoria, South Africa. I think uh, it's very much in line with what most of the other rating agencies is currently doing. Um, Standard & Poor has moved South Africa to a negative outlook in December and Fitches also have a negative outlook on South Africa. So that's very much in line with what the other rating agencies are doing at this stage. Now, Ken, for those of us who are none the wiser, how does this uh, review process work and really what does it entail? Um, well, obviously Moody's will look at particularly South Africa's medium-term growth prospects because that will be crucial for us to uh, enable us to service our debt obligations going forward. And then they will also definitely look at the implementation of the budget um, policies that was proposed in February 2016. So it's very much a, a kind of a balanced budget, but I think Moody's will definitely try to assess if these policies are implemented uh, timely and also efficiently. Now, um, what does the review mean then for South Africa in terms of the implications that a downgrade uh, would have on the country? Well, if South Africa is downgraded not so much by Moody's but by um, Standard & Poor's to a non-investment rating, and that's possibly in uh, June this year, it means that South Africa has lost its investment allure for the international community, and that will probably be a big concern for, um, you know, uh, portfolio flows, and it could result in some uh, sales of um, some of South Africa's investments on the equity and bond markets. And that means that the Reserve Bank will have to rise interest rates to protect the RAND and these capital flows. And therefore, you know, the risk of higher interest rates is quite high. And higher interest rates in this current environment of very low agricultural production means that the risk for recession in South Africa will increase as a result. Um, just lastly, before we let you go, the fact that um, the finance minister is currently in the U.S. on that visit, um, does that play any role in terms of uh, the downgrading going ahead or not going ahead? I think it's very commendable of our finance minister to go on a roadshow and really do all in his power to avert this downgrade. But I think in the end, it will boil down to implementation of policies proposed in the budget. Thea Ferry is an economist with IHS in Pretoria, South Africa, speaking to Zekona Miso. 
The International Federation of Red Cross and Red Christian Societies, IFRC, has launched an appeal for about 9 million US dollars to combat the Zika virus outbreak. While the appeal will primarily focus on bolstering community-level response in the Americas, it will also support the implementation of preparedness measures and activities in other parts of the world, including Africa. The IFRC's Benoit Macha Carpentier explains the idea behind the appeal. Well, we had launched a previous appeal in February that was a regional appeal for the Americas, but we can see that actually the virus is spreading to more countries in the Americas, and we also want to be prepared in other regions because the vector, the mosquito that transmits the disease, is present in many parts of the world, so we need to also be prepared in these parts because there's, it's likely that the virus will spread further to other countries in the Americas and probably other continents. So we need to scale up what we're doing at country level in the Americas. they also be prepared in other parts of the world. Now, what will your priority intervention areas be? And apart from the Americas, which other parts of the world will you also be targeting? The priority um, activities in the Americas is clearly to do um, a lot of community work to make sure that people clean their environment, remove their garbage, and do it for a long time. So this is clearly the main activity. So that's where... The National Red Cross Societies in the Americas, we have hundreds of volunteers that are going to be mobilized to do that at community level to make sure that we, we really do these activities well and in the long term. That's the crucial part of it is to kind of remove the breeding sites of the mosquitoes so that we can reduce the number of mosquitoes and therefore reduce the number of people infected. For the, and then it's a lot of prevention measures. We're also distributing one of the key at-risk populations, as you know, the pregnant women. We'll be distributing kits to pregnant women with mosquito repellent, mosquito nets, even if just to make sure they have all the prevention measures and tools with them. So that's the key activities we'll be running. There's a lot of psychosocial support also for people and families that have been affected with babies who have uh, microcephaly to provide them with support. Now, Benoit, how much of a difference um, have you been able to make in terms of the work that you've already done in the affected areas? And to what extent has the current outbreak impacted, particularly on the poorest and most vulnerable people? Well, we're still at the beginning of the operation, so it's difficult for now to give numbers. We are scaling up, we are putting more resources, and that's why we need the funding quite uh, soon. So, the, as I was telling you, the, the impact is really on, at community level and, and making sure that we don't forget one because it's really important to reach everyone. Benoit Maja Carpentier is with the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies and he is in Geneva in Switzerland and he was speaking to Zikona Misa earlier today. 17.22 Central African Time. The Youth Commonwealth Conference entered its second day in South Africa's city, Pretoria today, South Africa's capital, that is Pretoria today. The conference seeks to encourage the creation and sharing of knowledge around theory and practice of youth work in Africa. Youth Desk Director for South Africa's Department of Planning, Monitoring and Evaluation, Bernice Langala, says the purpose of this year's event is to professionalize youth sectors and to encourage the youth to tap in and contribute directly to their country's economy. Langala elaborates. Young people are the beneficiaries of youth development services and the services that they receive they can either receive the services from different organizations, either government and either youth-led or youth-serving organizations or private sector. 
But what is important is that um, we need to assist through this conference people who are working directly with young people so so that they can be responsible for rendering services effectively in in a responsive manner to them. This year's theme is re-examining the role of youth work practitioners and academics in engaging young people in the development of the country. Do you mind sharing with us why you chose this theme? We chose this theme because we are fully convinced that youth workers have a critical role in mobilizing and engaging young people. If you have got skilled and capable youth workers, they will be able to provide the appropriate direction to our youth and they will be able to mobilize young people. The reason we are saying that we should mobilize young people for nation building um, is because, um, you know, young people, they are actually an untapped resource. Um, And if we can actually use the fact that they are the majority of the segment population compared to older people or, you know, children um, or adults, we can actually use them effectively. So if we can mobilize young people, for an example, as government, we can use them in trying to accelerate service delivery. We can use them in trying to ensure that we promote access um, to services and resources. Now, can you please paint the picture for us on what were today's proceedings? Um, today's proceedings, we are concentrating on building a collective strength and a collective identity for youth workers. What we are essentially saying is that it is important to, for youth workers to come together and organize themselves into formal structures. And, um, you know, those structures will be used to advocate and lobby for youth development, uh, you know, issues. They will be used to promote sharing of ideas and best practices as well as knowledge. Because, you know, if we share, um, you know, ideas, then we will be keeping ourselves, uh, you know, abreast with the developments within our youth work, as we, which is, um, you know, to be a profession. There are many opportunities for young people uh, across even the whole continent. Let us start first with South Africa. What sort of opportunities are available to young people that they can access even across the continent? What sort of opportunities are available for young people considering also current state of different currencies that are available in Africa? I will first start with what is at hand. In terms of youth work, we are saying that if youth work is recognized as a profession, it will have employment opportunities for our youth because many of our youth workers are young people themselves. So if it's got still young people who are actually employed within the youth sector, they can assist um, you know, in reaching out to other young people. We have seen that young people you know, prefer to be reached by their own peers. So there are employment opportunities if the youth sector is actually professionalized. And um, again, um, you know, the other, uh, other opportunities, there are op- opportunities for, you know, reskilling um, young people. Uh, it is important that young people have to try to source, uh, you know, various opportunities, be it in vocational or, uh, you know, education and training, um, be it in mainstream education. Uh, you know, they must ex- access various um, educational opportunities because it's only through education that young people can get, uh, you know, they can actually get out of, of poverty. But, you know, there are other opportunities for entrepreneurship, for an example, where young people, um, you know, enter businesses. There are other opportunities where young people can also, you know, join mainstream economy.
So, you know, young people need to look out for various opportunities that are relevant, but then most importantly, you know, the skills that, um, you know, are in demand. Uh, one would say that access to funding to government, it's not so easy to access in South Africa, considering the fact that there are longer processes of getting access to funding, to start up businesses. What would you say? I would say that, um, you know, uh, young people should actually approach. That is why for us, we are actually advocating for youth workers because we are saying that people who are in the forefront of delivering services for young people, they should be people who have got the interest, they should be people who have got the passion to try to respond effectively to the needs of young people. We have identified that as a gap and we are saying that if, for an example, you've got um, organizations that are providing funding, they should actually have uh, youth focal points and those should be the people who have got the interest of young people. So I would say that it is important, you know, for... For, for young people to understand how the system is actually operating and, um, you know, they should uh, try to liaise with institutions that um, are actually rendering services. That was the Youth Desk Director at South Africa's Department of Planning, Monitoring and Evaluation on the line from Pretoria talking to Vusi Gossi and her name is Benice Lakala. The seventh IT Leaders Africa Summit takes place at Vodacom World near Johannesburg, South Africa from the 15th to the 16th of March. The event is more than just another conference. It is led by some of today's key individuals who are shaping the IT landscape. Leaders in the industry have been consulted to tailor an agenda that is both current and topical. So if you cannot make it to the summit, then don't you worry. Channel Africa will be there, so listen to us as we broadcast live from the 7th IT Leader Summit, taking place on the 15th and 16th of March. You can catch us on the shortwave on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band or on the DSTV channel 902, as well as on the internet channelafrica.org. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. All right, it's 1729, 17.30 now, Central African time, and it's time for news headlines. Yes, Asanda Matonyan. Thanks, Pumelele. Good afternoon. South African FIFA President Hopeful. Tunisian troops kill seven more Islamist militants during raids in Ben Gedan, the town on the Libyan border, where 55 people died during an attack on Monday. Morocco's government accuses UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon of no longer being neutral in the Western Sahara conflict, and the South African Human Rights Commission will hold a racism conference following a storm of racist comments over social media this year. Your news headlines here on Channel Africa.
Thank you very much, Asana, for that update. It's 1731 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And if you want to find us on email, you can send us emails to info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. Now, Greenpeace International has published a report entitled Lost Health and Homes, the Legacies of Chernobyl and Fukushima. Rian Teol, Greenpeace Belgium director and nuclear expert, says the lasting legacy of Chernobyl and Fukushima exposes the impact that nuclear accidents in the two areas continue to have on day-to-day lives of millions of people. Survivors of Chernobyl are still eating food with radioactive contamination above permissible limits 30 years after the nuclear catastrophe forced hundreds of people from their homes. The report that we published today is about the legacies of the Chernobyl and Fukushima nuclear disasters, and it shows how hundreds and thousands of people are still suffering the consequences of these nuclear accidents and, for example, are still eating food with radioactive contamination above the limits, even in Chernobyl 30 years after the nuclear disaster. Now, the people living in these areas, what's their situation from Greenpeace's perspective? So they are still every day confronted with the radioactive contamination left behind by these accidents. In Fukushima five years ago, in Chernobyl 30 years ago, people still are, in everything they do, confronted with the consequences of these nuclear accidents and the radioactive contamination that is left behind by them. Fukushima is five years ago, Chernobyl is 30 years ago, but the food that people are consuming in Chernobyl regions are often still above the permissible limits. The radioactive contamination is higher than allowed. For example, in mushrooms or in milk that people are consuming every day. In Fukushima areas where the government is really trying to bring things back to normal and decontaminate the areas where people have been forced to evacuate, it's clear that after decontamination, the areas are often still very much contaminated and the forests have become large storage places for radioactive contamination, which means that people living in the villages will always be surrounded by this contamination and there's a high risk of areas that were previously clean to be contaminated again. Now, as it is with regards to Fukushima, whereby the government in Japan is persuading people to go back to the area, how practical is it that the people will be living a normal life, those who go back to the area? They will very likely never live a completely normal life because they are living on small clean islands within a larger contaminated region. They used to use the forest in their daily life. They used to build, take fruits from the forest. They used to use wood from the forest. But because those forests are still very much contaminated, the people will also not be able to live as they used to. So back to normal life does not exist for those people. So the ecosystem is completely destroyed with regards to the contamination by this nuclear disaster? Yeah, the forest, it's impossible to remove all the radioactivity from the forest. So those will remain radioactive for decades or even a century. And therefore, for the people who have to live close to those areas, it will continue to remain a threat. As we can see in Chernobyl, where it's already 30 years ago that the accident happened, but people are still being confronted with that risk every day. What could be a lesson of these two events, uh, Fukushima and Chernobyl, to some of the areas in the globe 
like for instance Africa who is vying for nuclear energy yeah it's clear that nuclear disasters leave scars for for many many years to millions of people so we urgently call for a phase out of nuclear power and Countries that do not have nuclear power, they should really invest in renewable energy, in clean energies that are safe and that will not make millions of victims in case of accidents. And now how do we address the situation whereby it is said that nuclear energy is uh, environmentally friendly as it does not emit greenhouse gases? Yes, of course, uh, nuclear power plants, they emit less CO2, but If you look over the whole nuclear power chain, that is still to be debated because, of course, the mining of nuclear fuel will still cause CO2 emissions. But it's in that sense, the emissions of nuclear power plants are smaller than from coal power plants, for example. But we shouldn't only look at the climate effect. We should also look at the effects of nuclear accidents. And there are alternatives. There is clean, safe energy available that we can choose instead of nuclear power. As it is said that the nuclear power stations that have been built today are more advanced than the Fukushima and Chernobyl ones. What would be your comment on that with regards to safety? The Japan technology was always said to be the safest in the world and they have not been able to prevent this accident in Fukushima. The currently available technologies are not significantly safer than what was built in Fukushima. So there is no safe nuclear power. That's Rien Teule, Greenpeace Belgium director and nuclear expert, on the line from Brussels in Belgium, talking to Wandile Kalipa. In countries around the globe, Mark, as the countries around the globe, rather, mark World Glaucoma Week this week, experts are advocating for routine eye check at least once a year as the most cost-effective measure of preventing the dreaded disease. Glaucoma is the second leading cause of blindness globally, yet millions of people are unaware of the risk factors associated with it. In our weekly look at health issues, our reporter Elizabeth Lideja focuses on the risk factors of glaucoma and how best to prevent it. World Glaucoma Day has been developed by the World Glaucoma Association and the World Glaucoma Patient Organization in response to the concern over the worldwide increase in the number of people with glaucoma. Glaucoma is referred to as the sneak thief of sight since there are no symptoms and once vision is lost, it's permanent. Professor Grant McLaren of the St. John's Eye Clinic in Soweto, south of South Africa's Johannesburg City, says this is why it's important to have a week dedicated to spreading the word about glaucoma. The significance is that we want people to know about the disease glaucoma, especially the one that affects adults and the ones that are largely asymptomatic in the early and the sort of moderate stages of the disease. And we want people to be aware of the disease, to ask for examination after the age of 40, sometimes in African populations even earlier than in their 30s, just so that can be detected, diagnosed, and put on treatment so that they don't lose their vision within 10 years of diagnosis. If you don't diagnose and the pressure remains high, you will lose your vision within 10 years. Glaucoma is a group of eye diseases that gradually still sight without warning. Although the most common forms primarily affect the middle-aged and the elderly, glaucoma can affect people of all ages. Professor McLaren outlines some of the risk factors of glaucoma. The most important thing is, one, to 
be aware of it so that you can ask for examination. If you've got a family history, if you're over the age of 40, family history of glaucoma, then you need to be examined. So the things to examine are, one, your pressure, but most importantly, your, what your optic nerve looks like, the nerve that leaves the eye and goes back to the brain. Right where it leaves the eye, that's where it shows characteristically the changes that are associated with glaucoma. In terms of symptoms, there are no symptoms. The one lady we interviewed who was one of our patients, she was diagnosed purely because she thought there was something wrong with her vision. She noticed a few halos from a high pressure around lights, but more importantly, she had no peripheral vision on the one eye. She wouldn't see people approaching her from the right, and she thought, I need this checked out. So as a 37-year-old, which is younger than the so-called 40 cutoff when you start to develop the disease, she was one of those African patients who get the disease earlier, and it's an aggressive form. She'd lost almost, in the visual field terms, 80% of her visual field, but she still retained her central vision. She could still read with her eye, but the peripheral vision was all gone, and that's characteristic of the disease. You lose your peripheral vision first before you start losing central vision. Despite being one of the leading causes of blindness globally, understanding and awareness of the disease remains surprisingly low, according to Professor McLaren. You know, awareness reflects the level of education and nowhere in the world is it satisfactory. Even in so-called sophisticated first world countries, the awareness is still only 51%. In Australia, where they've done measured studies of awareness, they find half the population doesn't even know the word glaucoma. And when you start delving into, well, do you know glaucoma? Tell me about it. Another only 20 to 30% will know that affects the eye even. And then you say, actually, can it be treated and can you go blind from it? And even lower percentages appreciate that. The awareness everywhere is low, and we are no different as a country of, in terms of awareness. There's a low awareness. Even in our own patient population in our clinic who are treated for glaucoma, there's only 20% of people know enough about glaucoma to describe it. While glaucoma damage cannot be reversed, he says medicine and surgery can help to stop further damage. The risk factor in most of our population is high pressure. So if you diagnose them, if you had to go and measure 100 people with glaucoma, you would only find raised pressure in half of them because the pressure doesn't stay up all the time, it fluctuates. So if you catch them in the peak, you'll diagnose them on pressure. The key thing that you measure, you can measure pressure, but look at the nerve. The nerve responds characteristically to raised pressure or to circulation imbalances and that sort of thing, but primarily pressure. So you can measure pressure, look at the nerve, and you can do visual field examination. Or more sophisticatedly, you can do nerve fiber layer thickness analyzing, and that will see whether that's a normal thickness nerve or nerve layer or is it below normal. And the pattern of loss of thickness is characteristic for glaucoma. To prevent the development of glaucoma, the public is this week urged to participate in regular comprehensive eye examinations and for people to speak to their physicians if they are worried about their risk of glaucoma. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Elizabeth Lidira in Johannesburg. And increased awareness is not enough action. 
is required. So says the Undersecretary General of the United Nations Entity for Women, Pumzile Mlambunguga, at an event to mark International Women's Day in the United Headquarters in the United Nations headquarters in New York yesterday. UN Women is mobilizing people globally to champion its campaign of gender parity or Planet 50-50 by 2030 with a call from the highest office at the United Nations for greater investment in initiatives that work to meet this deadline in 15 years. Show in Bryce Peace reports. The opening bell for gender equality as the New York Stock Exchange started the trading day in celebration of International Women's Day with a spotlight on the economic empowerment of women. Tell me I'm not gonna make it. Ha! Watch cause I'm not gonna quit. Nah! At a special event at the UN, young pop singer Tanila Moore set the tone with her song I Am a Girl, as UN Women works to rally people across the age and generation divides, as its executive director Pumzile Mlambongmuka explains. Increased awareness by itself is not enough. Action is required. Gender equality is a complex issue. It needs a comprehensive response. It needs resources that are considerable in order for us to be effective with our actions. All the 17 goals that have been uh, adopted, all of which have a focus on gender equality, demonstrates the complexity of the issue we are dealing with. She listed some of the specific challenges facing society today. Gender parity and leadership of women is key. Because together, we have to address unpaid care work with the women. Together, we have to address equal pay with women. Together, we have to address reproductive rights and sexual rights. Together, we have to address and end the harmful practices that affect women and girls in different parts of the world. In his message, the UN Chief Ban Ki-moon called for principled leadership on the issue. As a Secretary General of the United Nations, I live by a firm principle. For too long, leaders used women to advance their power. I believe we must use our power to advance women. That is why I have appointed record numbers of women to the highest posts in the United Nations. Around the world... They are proving how the best person for the job is often a woman. With a focus firmly on implementation of policy and legislation in countries around the world after the adoption of the SDGs in September last year. I'm Sherman Bricebees in New York. Wilson Matabula has your economic news. Good evening. Thanks, says Pumelele. Nigeria's economy slowed in the final quarter of 2015 from the previous three months. Annual growth remained weaker than the previous year after the plunge in crude prices slashed government revenues and weakened the currency. The Nigerian Bureau of Statistics says year-on-year growth during the three months to December slowed to 2.11% from 2.84% in the third quarter. Economic challenges have been mounting as cheap oil slashes vital revenues from crude sales.
Zimbabwean Finance Minister Patrick Chinamasa says the country will sharply reduce its public sector wage bill and improve fiscal discipline. This as he looked uh, to reassure a visiting delegation from the International Monetary Fund, the IMF. Chinamasa says uh, the public sector wage bill will be slashed from 82% of government spending currently to 52% of expenditure by the year 2019. And Ghana's annual consumer inflation uh, fell to 18.5% in February from 19% the month before. Consumer prices could fall further if the CD holds steady and in the absence of any external shock. After weakening nearly 4% in January on seasonal high corporate dollar demand, the CD has remained firm in recent weeks. South African power utility ESCOM says it has set aside more than five billion US dollars to fund its major programs. This includes ongoing maintenance activities over the next two years. The power utility's chief financial officer, Anoj Singh, says a big part of the funding is to ensure the country does not experience another load shedding in the future. There's a significant amount of the funding that was that will be required over the next two years that's relatively committed already in terms of signed uh, facilities that we can draw on as and when projects require the funding. Meanwhile, still on ESCOM, the power utility will increase its capital expenditure by 44% to $21 billion over the next five years to build new power stations. The cash-stripped utility says it secured $5 billion of funding, representing a nearly all of the capital needed for 2016 and for 2017. Let's look now at your financial indicators. We start with the dollar trading at 15.34 against the South African rand at 10.99 Botswana Pula and 11.30 Zambian Kwacha. Also trading at 0.70 to the British pound and 0.90 against the euro. Commodities gold trading at $1,255. Platinum is at $968 a fine ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $39.63 per barrel. And that's your economics news for this hour. Back in two hours' time with another update. Mosebudi Makura has your sports news. Sports fans and starting off with cricket news, South Africa's women's national cricket team have won the third and final T20 match by beating the West Indies four by four runs to take the series 2-1 at Newlands Stadium in Cape Town on Wednesday afternoon. The South Africans posted 119 for the loss of four wickets in their innings, while the West Indies finished on 115 for the loss of eight wickets. South African captain Mion Dupree uh, says it was a good team effort. It's nice to have the trophy back on our side again. Uh, I think the bowlers did brilliantly to defend the total. Um, We might have been a few runs short in the end. We didn't excel as we would have liked, but to to defend that total, the bowlers have done absolutely brilliant. Um, And I hope now we can take this momentum into the T20 World Cup. It's not not always easy, but I think we've got the bowling attack to do it, and we're probably one of the best in the world. And if we can get the day where all three departments fire, um, I I think we're going to be unstoppable. 
Meanwhile, on football news, a former PSL coach has allegedly been implicated in a match-fixing scandal in Zimbabwe. The Zimbabwean Football Association released a statement on Tuesday night stating that they have suspended former Ajax Cape Town and Morocco Solos player Idzeya Kanyeshwa on allegations of trying to fix the 2017 African Nations Cup qualifier between Zimbabwe and Swaziland. Sources close to Zifa says investigations are underway in Zimbabwe regarding recent high-profile international matches involving the Brave Warriors. The association is expected to make an announcement at a later stage. On to athletics news, athletics powerhouse Russia is running out of time to eradicate doping and may not be able to send a track and field team to this year's Rio Olympics. This according to Dick Pound, the chairman of the World Anti-Doping Agency Independent Commission. Russian athletes were banned from international competition after a report by Pound's commission revealing widespread doping and craft with involvement of Russian and international athletics officials. Russian athletes, um, rather athletics um, authorities, were ordered to carry out a sweeping reforms to allow a lifting of the band. Last week, a German TV documentary contained fresh allegations of malpractice in Russia's anti-doping system. Among the claims in Sunday's ARD program were that Russian coaches suspended in the worst corruption and doping scandal to hit the sport were still working in athletics while others continued to provide banned substances to athletes. The doping and corruption scandal is among the worst in athletics history and has put in question lucrative global sponsorships, deals, as well as results and medal awards in past international competitions. You know, back home, South African Health Minister Aaron Mutswaledi has um, again advised the South African team going to the Olympics in Rio to always have mosquito um, repellents at hand. He was briefing Parliament's Health Committee on the country's readiness to deal with the virus. Mutswaledi says he is not concerned about the Zika virus because the mosquito transmitting the virus is not in the country. He says he, um, rather, they advise the Olympic team to take more precautions. Make sure that you avoid being bitten by a mosquito. How do you do that? Make sure that you live with mosquito repellent. Your whole body you must use mosquito repellent. Make sure that you wear long sleeves. Make sure that if you find yourself inside the room, that room, whether in a hotel or what, that room has got air condition going on. If you don't have an air condition, sleep next to a fan. Those are your sports news at the Sour Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. Your time is 17.54 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest. The vo- on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, let's recap our top stories. Authorities in South Sudan confirmed that 400 Sudanese citizens have escaped from LRA rebels. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Fumala Lezondi, producer Luanda Maume, technical producer Adrian Kenny, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thanks for listening. Send us emails, info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za, on SMS, you're on plus 27-796-957-930, plus 27-796-957-930. 
You can also tweet us, Channel Africa One. We leave you with a chance by foreplay. <laughs> 